All right, so we're starting off this, um, this series, and this is a really important premise to begin a series about the truth, which is, can the truth even be accessed? Can, it, can, we, can we find it? So that's really what we're going to spend our time on today. And let me begin by introducing you to a real truth guardian. His name is Nabil. And though he grew up in the U.S., he was born to a devoutly Muslim family, his parents having immigrated from Pakistan. And when he was six years old, he was given his first Koran by his mother. The family were strict adherents to Islam, meaning Nabil never knew a life without daily prayer, worship at the mosque, obedience to the imams, and all the other rich and detailed trappings of Islam. He was steeped in a culture, a religion, a worldview, a set of values, a way of thinking, a way of accessing truth. Everyone he knew believed the same things, thought the same ways. When Nabil was born, he was immediately handed to his father, who whispered the Adhan into the crying newborn's ears. There is no God but Allah. He is the only God, and, and Muhammad is his prophet. These were the first words ever spoken to the newborn baby. This was Nabil's word from, world from his first moment, and he never questioned the truth of it. I mean, why would he? Why would someone question if the sun really rises, if water is wet, or if you drop a stone, it will hit the ground? Why would Nabil ever question whether Allah really is great, or whether Muhammad was his messenger? These were facts. These things were true. That was all he knew. Nabil was smart, a standout student who excelled throughout school, content and fully secure that the truths he had received from his first day of life and every day since were as true as the scientific truths he was learning as a medical student. Until one day, on a trip with his college forensics team, he pressed a fellow student who he saw reading the Bible, and he pressed him about how unreliable the Bible was, unlike the Koran, which he said was God's perfect dictated word. For the first time, Nabil was confronted with a direct contradiction to what he had always known to be true, that the Bible was a flawed document. This was the beginning of a several years journey for Nabil where everything he thought was true was challenged. In fact, his definition of truth was challenged. You see, Nabil was not just handed truths from his culture. He was handed a way of understanding what truth was. So were you. Everyone is. Your first thought might be, well, doesn't everyone understand the truth the same way? I mean, what goes up must come down. Two plus two equals four. The sun rises in the east. I mean, everyone knows what the truth looks like. Well, not so fast. Since humans have been writing down deep thoughts, they have been debating the definition of truth, and not everyone agrees. For example... Nabil grew up with a view of truth based on Eastern cultural mores and conservative Islamic theology. These have some profound implications on how he viewed truth. Nabil explains it in his own words. People from Eastern Islamic cultures generally assess truth through lines of authority, not individual reasoning. Of course, individuals do engage in critical reasoning in the East, but on average, it's relatively less valued and less prevalent than in the West. Leaders have done the critical reasoning, and leaders know best. Receiving input from multiple sources and then critically examining the data to distill a truth is an exercise for specialists, not the common man. In other words, in Nabil's world, the truth is what you were told it was by people in authority. He goes on to say, 
In our culture, elders are simply to be obeyed. Islamic cultures tend to establish people of high status as authorities, whereas the authority in Western culture is reason itself. Thus, positional authority yields a society that determines right and wrong based on honor and shame. Now, I want you to contrast that view of truth with the following view from Rebecca McCown, a self-described mindset and transformational coach. She says this, Most of us spend our days living up to expectations and definitions. In this way, you, me, all of us are living to be someone different than who we truly are. This is a lie. It is time to live your truth and own it. This may take a bit of work, figuring out your truth. In reality, you really already know it, but for whatever reason, fear of judgment, previous definitions or denial, you have buried your truth deep within the abyss. If you stop and listen and feel your inner self, you will become aware of the truths that lie within you. Take the time to think on it, feel it, meditate or journal your thoughts and feelings. You may not even have to do this because you already are aware of your truth. Define your truth and roll with it. Live loudly and proudly now that you know your truths. Live it loudly and proudly. Let no one deny you your truth. Now, the contrast between these two views reveals the first issue we encounter when trying to apprehend the nature of truth. And that is the law of non-contradiction. Non-contradiction says that contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense at the same time. In other words, Nabil's view that truth flows from human authority cannot be true at the same time that Rebecca's view that truth flows from within you is also true. One or both of them is wrong. There's also the correspondence theory of truth, which says that if something is to be considered true, it must correspond to reality. It must be based on external realities, not on any subjective ideas of the observer. Now, based on this, both Nabil's and Rebecca's views fail. Nabil's view depends on the opinions of an authority figure, even if that opinion does not correspond to reality. And Rebecca holds that something is true, whether it's real or not, because one feels it to be true. Neither aligns with the correspondence theory. So, friends, neither of these truth theories work. And yet, one of them represents the fastest growing religion in the world, Islam. And the other represents, without question, the dominant Western secular view of truth. So we've got a truth problem on planet Earth because this is the majority. Now, maybe you're not a Muslim or a New Age subjectivist, but all of us will get pulled in one of these two directions. We all have a tendency to move towards one ditch or the other. We all fade in one direction or the other. So this is important to us. And I think it's important to recognize that Christians know a third way. A way that both corresponds to reality and does not contradict itself. Christians are the guardians of this third way. The Jesus way. And next week, Rick will talk about what specific truths are contained in the Jesus way. But with the rest of our time, I want to talk about how we can even deploy any kind of rational tools or uh, what kind of tools can we de- deploy to even determine if a thing is the truth. 
And I want to begin here. To know if something is true or not, we have to begin by being fair about it. We have to be fair. And in order to be fair, we must eliminate the following. Fear, apathy, ignorance, and rigidity or bigotry. To treat a truth claim fairly, to be fair, there can't be fear, can't be apathy, can't be ignorance, and it can't be, there can't be rigidity. So let's look at Nabil's story to see how fear can interfere with accessing the truth. He says, quote, I asked far too many questions for my relatives' tastes. Questions are often seen as a challenge to authority. That's true in this Islamic culture, but I hear this all the time from people in our Western Christian culture. You'd be surprised to hear how many seeker stories begin with something like, I went to such and such a church as a child, and when I asked, um, who created God? Or who wrote the Bible? I got punished. I got treated badly. I got, you know... And how that experience um, causes folks later on to learn to fear the truth. It trains them to fear truth and truth-seeking. Truth becomes an enemy that costs them dearly, so they begin to live in fear. And, the fear, and fear is no friend of the truth, ever. Likewise, Western subjectivism, so that's, that's that fear-based kind of Eastern, but, you know, it permeates our culture too. Western subjectivism breeds fear. We're all watching it, this dirty little secret unfold on the news and our social network feeds every day. When people encounter someone else's truth they don't like, the idea that everyone's personal truth is somehow equal goes right out the window as they use fear to coerce them into silence. And there are examples of this on both sides of the political spectrum. Some will defend the right of citizens to carry a Confederate battle flag, literally a symbol of recession from, secession from the country, and chant the words, Jews will not replace us. But they also call for those who sit or kneel during the national anthem to be fired and insult their mothers. Well, listen, if you're not afraid to hear from Nazis, why are you afraid to hear from Black Lives Matters? I mean, if your truth is your truth... Why not let them speak? What are you afraid of? On the other side, self-described free thinkers who demand the right to express themselves however they want to will literally shout down dissenting voices, block access to public meetings, and insist that the opinions they don't agree with be silenced and with violence if necessary. If you're all about personal expression and the free flow of ideas, why insist on shutting some of them down? I mean, if your truth is your truth, why not let them speak? What are you afraid of? Christian, whether you support NFL players or not, and whether you think neo-Nazis should be allowed to speak in public or not, the important thing to recognize here is that the use of fear is a very effective tool to obscure truth. When fear is used, you can know that those involved have no interest in discovering what's true. Their primary interest is only in getting their way and being right. And I don't care what your political or philosophical bent or where, that is the case. And it should not be so. We've been given clear marching orders from the Bible when it comes to truth and fear. Ephesians chapter 4, this is from the message version. And Paul is talking to you, church people. He says, God wants us to grow up 
Facebook users, to know... <laughs> Sorry. Okay, wait. <laughs> God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. The truth, yes, by all means, ever and always, but always with love, never ever with fear or coercion. Apathy is the next enemy of truth. You could call it laziness, I suppose. I mean, that's how it feels when I see it in me. (laughs) The academic term we could apply to this is the pragmatism view of truth. If it works, it must be true. Don't rock the boat. Maintain the status quo. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm content with the way things are, even if I deeply suspect that it's a lie. Nabil describes this in his own life. As the relationship with his new Christian friend deepens and he begins to explore the truth claims of Christianity, over the course of many months, Nabil begins to consider the idea that maybe Islam is not true and maybe Christianity is. He says, What many do not realize, what I did not realize when I was making these decisions, is that the costs of becoming a Christian are not considered consciously. They form part of the knee-jerk reaction against the gospel. I never said, I choose to remain Muslim because if it would cost me my family if I were to follow Jesus. Far from it. I subconsciously found ways and means to go on rejecting the gospel so I would not be faced with what I would have to pay. You see, to embrace truth where you find it means you must be willing to let go of untruths, even your most precious ones. In Nabil's case, it was literally his family. If he became a Christian, he would be shunned by his family and his community. He would lose everything. And it's not really too different from the Western free thinker either. I have found that having the freedom to literally make up your own reality tends to create realities that are highly beneficial for the reality maker. Have you noticed that? When when you're your own God, guess what? you tend to create a universe to your liking. So when confronted with the idea that Christianity is the truth, you're also confronted with the requirement of surrendering your custom-built reality, the one that's perfectly suited to your needs and desires. You know, the one that has a morality that's just flexible enough to include your little proclivities but remains superior to the real perverts and criminals. You know, the one that... that, um, that builds a community that reflects back to you the image of yourself you like. You know, the one that has you in the starring role of eternity. Folks, I get it. That's a lot to give up. A universe of your own constructing? That's a lot to surrender. But Jesus made a promise to those who set aside apathy in pursuit of truth. He said this, Truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Mark chapter 10. This 
This passage kind of smacks of the truth, doesn't it, a little bit? I mean, there's no fine print. There's no salesmanship. You're going to give up the things that keep you safe and sleepy, and in exchange, you're going to get trouble and eternity. That's something. All right, ignorance is one of the most annoying obstacles to truth because it's so avoidable. Once I was sitting in a restaurant during lunch and reading my Bible, and one of the staff who I knew pretty well was walking by and noticed. And he said with an embarrassing amount of confidence, you know that thing was only written about 400 years ago by a bunch of guys who made it up, right? And I kind of <coughs> spit my food out a little bit. And um, I asked, where, where did you hear that? And he said something like, well, everyone knows it. You know, it's common knowledge. So I calmly replied to Fred. We'll call him Fred. Fred, I said, um, no one believes that. <laughs> no one. They're not even hardened Bible skeptics. That's a myth. And there's no evidence at all to support it. The words in this book were written down over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And it's used by archaeologists and historians as a textbook. Fred said, oh. And back to apathy, right? But Fred's apathy was shaken there for a moment when I pushed back on ignorance. Now remember, when I say ignorance, I don't mean stupidity. That's not what it is. Ignorance just means the absence of knowledge, of information. And many people have seized upon what they think is the truth almost entirely because they lack knowledge. They kind of pick up whatever's easy and convenient, kind of like whatever's handed to them. Whatever you find lying around when you get up in the morning, oh, this must be truth and this must be truth. Back to Nabil's story. As time went on and he continued to dig deeper for the truth, his Islamic faith began to crack and finally it started to crumble. But not under the weight of fear and coercion. It began to crumble under the weight of knowledge. Up until his early 20s, much of what Nabil believed to be true about the Quran and Muhammad was based entirely, entirely on what he was told by authority figures. It was only after hearing things from non-Muslims that contradicted what he was taught that he was motivated to gain knowledge for himself. He said this, I did not know any of this until I sought to find the truth myself. I decided to start studying Muhammad's life by getting a better hold of the available information. Once I had a grasp of the material, I would be able to determine how to best approach its historicity. In other words, whether it was true or not. This was a critical turning point for Nabil when he began to seek knowledge for himself. And this is equally true for the Westerner. The majority of intellectual resistance to Christianity that I've encountered over the years has at least some, if not most, ignorance blended into it. So what am I saying to you? Ask the questions. If you're ever in a Christian environment and you're shut down for question asking, find another Christian environment. Ask the, get the Bible open for yourself. Come to investigations class beginning October 10th, Tuesday night. If you or your skeptical friend really want the truth, there's nothing to fear. You're not going to get coerced. It's going to be an open exploration and dialogue. We'll explore together. But right, wait, if you're considering that right now, confess, it's still hard, right? Okay, maybe it's safe, maybe all that other stuff, but it's still really hard. Why? Well, you see, ignorance is closely linked with apathy. It's hard work to find the truth. And most people around here already work really hard trying to make the mortgage payment and keep their kids safe. 
where am I supposed to find time to do original research on the historicity of the Bible? But let's say that you do find the time. You come to investigations. You read a couple of books. You take notes during Rick's sermons. You, you'll eventually be confronted with the fact that to accept Jesus as the truth is going to be hard. It costs. Like I said earlier, you'll have a lot to give up. And so secretly, deep down, many choose ignorance at that point. Plausible deniability is the phrase that got coined back in the for oldies like us that remember the Watergate days. Plausible deniability. I can't be held accountable for something I don't know. Sometimes we choose ignorance simply because we're already overwhelmed. So we choose, we choose to be ignorant. Now, when Jesus' first followers began to understand the truth of who he was, what was going to happen to him and why, they were, they were confronted with this conundrum. But he confirmed their suspicions with these words from John chapter 6. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Not surprisingly, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The truth was too much for some of them. They were put off by the idea of Jesus dying for them and taking him into themselves, and so they returned to ignorance, willfully. But Peter had done the work. He had watched. He had listened. He had observed. He'd asked the questions, even the stupid questions. So when he added it all up and he stood there looking at the truth, the truth was his reward, a person. Now, finally, the truth is often resisted by being too rigid. Now, that sounds paradoxical. The truth is resisted by being too rigid. Another way to say it is bigotry. And I, I don't mean racial bigotry. I mean truth bigotry. It can affect anyone from any truth tradition. Being right slowly replaces being truthful. And we become stuck and unable to move from our position even when the truth reveals that we were wrong. One of my little mantras is if I'm really interested in the truth, I have to be prepared to be wrong about half the time, statistically. On bad days, maybe, maybe a lot more. Nabil had nearly all his questions answered at this point. So he was no longer ignorant, right? I want you to get, get into Nabil's mindset. He had almost all his questions answered, so no more ignorance. He was the opposite of apathetic. He was vitally engaged in and uh, all-encompassing pursuit of truth. He was certainly nervous, but fear was not winning. So he's still stuck. Why? Rigidity. Let me, tell, let me tell, have him tell his story. Quote, Tearfully, one night, this is in a hotel room, I contended with God, pleading once again that He would reveal Himself. I admitted that despite all I thought I knew, I actually knew nothing. 
I needed God to show me the truth. I couldn't do it without His help, and I could not take the uncertainty much longer. It was quite probably the most humble moment of my life, and I begged Him desperately for a dream or a vision. At that instant, the room went pitch dark. I looked out into the blackness before me. Where there had been a wall just a few feet from my bed, the wall was no longer. What I saw instead was a field with hundreds of crosses. They were glowing in bright contrast to the darkness around them. The tears ceased. My body was paralyzed and time stood still. I panned over the crosses, but they were beyond number. And just as quickly as it had come, the vision was gone. I was back in the hotel room at the edge of my bed in stunned silence. I considered what I had just seen. After a few moments, I I looked up toward the heavens and I said, God, that doesn't count. (laughs) One side of my mind was asking, did God just reveal himself to me? Did he finally answer my prayers? I saw a field of crosses. That must mean he wants me to accept the gospel. But the other side played the devil's advocate, arguing Nabil, if you're wrong about this, Allah sends you to hell forever. This could be Satan trying to confuse you. Somewhere in my mind, the more rationalist side of me thought, maybe you're just jet-lagged and seeing things. Do you really want to make the biggest decision of your life based on one sleepy emotional moment? Are you ready to give up everything for this? God will understand. I need more. I returned to God, shamed but emboldened. I prayed, God, that doesn't count. I don't know if that was really what I thought it was, so I'm sorry I asked for a vision. Please give me a dream, and if the dream confirms the vision, I will become a Christian. Perhaps I was subconsciously trying to stall the inevitable, but God would not allow it. He gave me a dream that very night. Now, I don't have time to recount the rest of the story, but Nabil got his dream, and guess what? He still wouldn't budge. So he asked God for three dreams. And within three months, Nabil had three astounding dreams, which were interpreted with the help of his devoutly Muslim mother. And all three dreams clearly underscored the truth that had been emerging in Nabil's mind, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And in August 2005, Nabil prayed these words. I submit, I submit that Jesus is Lord. I submit. Do you know what that word is in Arabic? Islam. That's what Islam means. He turned it, I submit to Jesus. Nabil embraced the truth, became a follower of Jesus, was baptized, was trained up and discipled by a church, and and became a powerfully effective evangelist and apologist working with Ravi Zacharias. His parents disowned him, as did the rest of his community. But he finished medical school, he married and had a daughter. He traveled the world preaching and teaching about the truth. And there's more to this story that we can fit into this week, so don't miss the rest of the series because we're going to tell the rest of Nabil's story and it is compelling. But that bias 
that bigotry, his rigidity that he experienced there towards the end of his journey in Nabil's discovery of truth, he got to the answers to his questions, but he still wouldn't budge. Right? He wasn't ignorant anymore, but he still wouldn't budge. He received a vision. Not good enough. He was given a dream. Still not budging. Finally, after three dreams, that's rigidity. It's easy to criticize someone like Nabil from our perch here in the free-thinking West where we're convinced uh, that we're the most open-minded people ever. Really? I would simply refer you back to fear and the astoundingly rigid ideas that people of all political stripes will defend beyond reason and even to the ruin of relationships. The Western mindset of your truth is your truth is ironically one of the most inflexible and bigoted views imaginable. You can believe whatever you want as long as you believe that. There is no absolute truth except that. There is no absolute truth. That's absolute except for, right? It's a logical trap. It's like this room over here, a prison, a tyranny of thought that can't be escaped. If you really believe it, you can't get out of it. So in conclusion today, whether you are here exploring the truth or God has called you to be a guardian of the truth, let's review and summarize with the words of Paul the Apostle from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, Therefore, since God, excuse me, therefore since through God's mercy we have this ministry, truth guardians, we do not lose heart. Let's, let's pull it up so we can see the, there we go, thank you. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry of truth guardianship, we do not lose heart. In other words, we're not apathetic. There is no apathy in this. Rather, he goes on to say, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. That's fear and coercion. And it is spelled out here that is not in the toolkit of guardians of the truth. On the contrary. So what do we do? Well, Paul's going to answer for you. On the contrary. By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, that's saying when we are the truth, when we let the truth in us, the person of truth, and we just plainly live it out, it has its impact. The conscience of those who watch are altered. Continuing, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine where? In our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You don't have to be ignorant if you don't choose to be. God's light of knowledge has been made available to you. Every single one of you. Verse 7, But we have this treasure, this knowledge, this light, the truth. It's in jars of clay. Our our faultiness, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. There's no rigidity in this. Like the old saying, we're the willow. We don't break. It never becomes something other than what it is. It's the truth, but we can bend. We don't have to be the oak tree just being snapped off. Lighten up. Calm down. Stand for the truth plainly and in love. Finally, he, he concludes, it is written, 
I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore we speak. To be a guardian of the truth means we recognize that objective, capital T, truth that is a person, and we speak of him. We don't cower. We don't hide. We're not afraid. We're not apathetic about it. We're certainly not ignorant, and we don't stand in such rigidity that we can't be converted to the truth where we find it. We can't be willing to convert someone else to the truth. Friends, there is truth out there. And when we put aside fear, apathy, ignorance, and rigidity, like Nabil, you will find that truth is a person. It's a person. Remember Ephesians 4. We grow up. We grow up to speak the truth in love. And we can see the interactions of all four of those obstacles to truth, how one kind of leads to the other and they can loop back. When we get too rigid about our... All of a sudden we realize, well, being right is the most important thing. And what happens? Well, then when we get confronted with something else, we're afraid because our apathy is going to get all shaken up. So we respond how? That'll change the world. I'm going to get a big sign, and I'm going to shout. Really? Coercion and fear? is That's not in here. Somebody said to me last night um, during extended, kind of as a passing thought as we were discussing, they said, well, I, I believe what I believe. And, I, and I, I really wanted to stop and interact with them about that statement because kind of the spirit of it was, I think that might be the problem. I believe what I believe. And what immediately came to mind is that bumper sticker you've seen. I I can't get it exactly right, but it's like, God said it, the Bible, it's in the Bible, that's good enough for me. You know that one? And on my most charitable days, I see that bumper sticker and I go, okay, well, there's somebody who's, you know, got it surrounded. On my less charitable days, it's like, that's not good enough. (laughs) That's not good enough. You need to know why you believe, Christian. Why do you believe? And if all you come up with is you're just angry and you just, well, I picked this one up and my dad told me that. And well, Rick said that. And Rick's from Canada. He can't lie. And, <laughs> right? I mean, they don't lie and they don't litter and they're nice and they just do it. So it's got to be true. If, if that's why you have that bumper sticker, that's not good enough. If you just believe what I believe, that's rigidity. You need, you need to understand why you believe. We're going to delve into this a little bit more deeply and extend and talk a little bit more about worldview and that sort of thing. So if you'd like to, be, be, uh, feel free to stick around. But more importantly, I want you to be sure that you're back here next week to talk about what, what truths are contained in this worldview. The Christ, the person of Jesus, the capital G truth. What's contained in that? What is, one author said, what is mere Christianity? And uh, Rick's going to unpack that for us. And bring a friend especially one of those people that you may know who's currently just grappling with this idea of truth. Bring them. We'll explore together. All right, let me pray for you. God, thank you so much that um, we have the, the ability to gather here today to explore truth. God, I pray for the investigations class coming up on the 10th that you would bring people who are ready to just engage openly, courageously to to open that door and see the breathtaking space before them of nothing but truth. God, protect us from fear. God, raise us up out of apathy. Lord, we we embrace the light that you've given us, the knowledge that's at our fingertips to, to... 
to understand truth. And, and Lord, we pray that where we find ourselves hardened and crusty and, and un- immovable, God, shake that loose, soften our hearts so that we're able to take in the truth that you bring us and protect us, Lord, as we go on this adventure to find truth. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the truth. Amen.